Will you turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews? Today we finally finish chapter 12. We've been in here for a couple of weeks. Remember that in our discussion of Hebrews, chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, the last three chapters of the book, they focus on the themes of faith, hope, and love. And so Hebrews 11 was all about the faith of God's people and how they demonstrated that faith. Chapter 12 is all about the hope that we have in Christ. And then next time we come to Hebrews, we're going to finish uh, through chapter 13 when we talk about the love of God, not only in us, but the love that we have for one another. Today we'll, we will finish chapter 12. Today's sermon is titled, God of the Mountain. And I pray that today God will bless us all as we read and listen to his word today. So if you find chapter 12 in Hebrews, please stand with me when you find it. We stand together in honor of God's word, and I'll read this for all of us, beginning at verse 18, and we'll finish the chapter, verse 29. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 18, God of the mountain. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shall shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and God godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. You may be seated. There's a lot going on in these verses. A lot of important lessons. We may not be able to dissect every verse today and every word uh, as would be appropriate anytime we study God's word together, but today as we consider God of the mountain, we're going to see a flow of three different things, uh, three messages that are being spoken to us today concerning the mountain and God's people. Today we're going to see three things. Number one, a holy height. Number two, a wonderful way. 
And last, number three, a passionate people. Before we begin looking at part one, the holy height, there was a, a Christian pastor and an author of several books. You may have read some of his books, but this pastor told a story in one of his books. He traveled to a place in Southeast Asia, short-term short -term missions trip. And while he was in this country, he was visiting a certain community that were all in the middle of a celebration at a local temple that was in that community. And this Christian pastor was there and just sort of meeting people and, and ministering to people there. And as he was walking through the crowd, he came upon two men, two non-Christians, two men of different religions, yet they were leaders in their own separate religion. And he heard them talking to each other. And they were saying things like, you know, we all have different religions, and we all may have our differences on small things, but when you really boil it all down, all of us are just sort of seeking the same God. You choose your way to do it, I choose my way to do it, but in the end, we're all just on our separate pathway to find God. And this Christian pastor heard what they said, and he joined into the conversation. And he said, excuse me, but it sounds like what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's sort of like God is on a mountain. And everybody wants to scale this great mountain to be with God. But some people of this religion have their own pathway to get up the mountain. These people of another religion say, no, 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 we're going to try this pathway to get up to God. But in all, everyone is trying to scale this mountain hopefully one day to be with God. And they said, exactly, well put, that's what we're saying. You understand. And this Christian pastor said, I leaned in and I said, what if I told you that this God on the mountain, he actually came down to us? What if I told you that that's what God has done? And they said, that would be tremendous. That would be good news. And he said, as response, let me introduce you to Jesus Christ. When I think of that story, when I hear that experience, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly with what he just said, with all my heart. But every time I read these verses, that's the picture I have in mind. I have in mind a God who was on a high mountain, and so many people who want to scale that mountain, hoping to be with him, only to find out no matter what, you will not reach the top of that mountain. No matter how hard you try, no matter how good you may feel you are, no one can scale that mountain. But we serve a God knowing that we couldn't make it. He came down to us. So consider that as we open to this chapter 12 and look at these verses here. And as we do, God of the mountain, let's look at point number one a holy height. Now what is Hebrews talking about here? There is this mountain being talked about, a mountain that could be touched. In other words, it was a real physical mountain. This isn't an allegory. There's a real mountain being talked about here. And on this mountain, it was burning. There was fire, blackness, darkness, a storm, whirlwind, a trumpet blasting. When he's speaking about this mountain, what's he talking about? What is this real mountain 
This real example he's talking about, it comes from the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 19 and quite a few verses after that. It's the story of God redeeming Israel out of Egypt, bringing them across the Red Sea or through the Red Sea into the wilderness and finally at a mountain called Sinai. What's being talked about here is Mount Sinai. Now when the writer of Hebrews is mentioning this, his readers already know all about the story. But maybe we don't. So let's review what happened in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai. It's speaking of when God called Israel as one people united, he wanted them to come see him at the mountain of Sinai. And so he told them, in order for you to prepare for what's about to happen, I want you for three days, he said this through Moses, for three days, all the people, you must wash yourselves Wash all your clothing. Husbands and wives, abstain from each other. Purify yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Sanctify yourselves for three days. And on the third day, I'm coming to see you. And so Israel followed all those rules. And they washed, and they washed their clothes. Married couples did what they were told. Everybody did what was required. And they did the best that they could. And then the third day came. And God came upon Mount Sinai. And the image, what they saw, was so incredible. It was incredible, yet it was terrifying. It struck horror into their hearts. Whatever they saw about God in Egypt with the plagues, whatever they thought about him with that, this is a whole nother level now. Now God himself is descending upon this mountain. And what did they see? Well, in the book of Exodus, we'll find these things. They looked and the whole mountain was on fire. It was a thick cloud covering the mountain. There was lightning. There was thunder. In fact, if you read the story in Exodus, it says about the thunder, the people saw the thunder. And I think that's a bit strange. When do we ever see thunder? I can understand seeing lightning, but seeing thunder? No, we, we hear thunder. You might feel thunder when the house is rumbling. Maybe tonight we're going to have a thunderstorm. You can feel thunder, hear it, but seeing it, I've never heard of that. And there are a lot of people who have sort of uh, an opinion or an idea what this really meant. Truth is, I'm not sure what it means. All I know is if I see thunder, that might strike fear in my heart. That's all I can say about it. I don't know what they saw, but it filled them with terror. And, as mentioned here, there was a trumpet being blasted from the mountain. The Bible says in the Old Testament, there, if, if people are to be called together as one, there needs to be someone to take a ram's horn, a trumpet, and blast it. And at the blasting of the ram's horn, people would come together. Or at the blasting of a ram horn, people would know danger is about to happen. Run for safety. And I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity, if anybody here is, an, uh, is a, uh, a trumpet, trumpeter, trumpeteer, ever played a, a horn instrument. Or I don't know if anybody here has ever tried to blow a ram's horn. I've tried it. I tried it several years ago. And it takes every 
ounce of strength from your lungs. I mean, it's something you've got to work on. And you've got to blast in a certain way with your lips with the utmost strength from your lungs. And you've got to blow as hard as possible. But even in doing that, as you're blasting that horn, you're becoming weaker and weaker. So that the horn will start out loud and then it gets quieter and quieter and quieter because you're losing the strength to blast that horn. I know what that's like. But the terrifying thing in Exodus is that when the people heard the horn, the ram's horn, they said it got louder and louder and louder. Which tells me this was no mere man in weakness blasting a ram's horn. This was either some angelic being or, as many believe, God himself was blasting the horn. And it got louder and louder. And they never heard anything like this before. The whole mountain was quaking and shaking under the glory and the holiness of God. And then he began to speak. And when they heard God speak, that was it. They covered their ears and they couldn't hear. They didn't want to hear anything. They were so terrified. In Exodus, they said, Moses, let him talk to you. And then when he talks to you, then you talk to us. But we don't want to hear the words of God. It's too much for us. They didn't want to listen. And it also mentions there was a command for all the people. When you approach Sinai, when you come to the foot of the mountain, you shall not touch the mountain. Anyone or anything that would dare touch the mountain of Sinai, they are to be stoned or shot through with an arrow. It didn't matter if a man thought, well, let me just see what might happen. It didn't matter if a woman said, yeah, but I've done all the things God told me to do. Let me just see. No. And it doesn't matter if a little lamb runs out from the flock and mistakenly comes upon that mountain. It doesn't matter. If you so much as touch this mountain, you will die. And the Bible says that the people could not endure such things. This was a holiness of God they had never seen before. And again, it struck terror into their hearts. Even Moses. Moses, the same one that God said, when I speak to Moses, I speak to him face to face. I speak to Moses like a man speaks to his friend. Even so, at the holiness of God, Moses said, I, yes, even I, the friend of God, I am exceedingly afraid and I'm trembling. Why? Because this was holiness. God is holy. The holiness of God and what they were witnessing was just how high God's holiness is compared to how low mankind is. Even though they washed themselves, even though they went through all these rituals, even then, they could not so much as even touch the mountain. They couldn't come close to this holiness. God's holiness demanded that all mankind stays back, stays away, keeps out. Mankind cannot approach the blazing holiness and glory of God. Who could ever approach a God like this? Who could ever even dream of coming near a God like this? 
and how foolish it is for anyone to think that if they practice certain religion or practice certain rituals or traditions that those things are going to give them the ability to touch the holiness of God. It wasn't true for these Israelites in the Old Testament and it's not true for us today. Good works, religion, tradition cannot bring you to this level of holiness with God. They beheld the glory of God, but they could go no closer. No closer. In the book of Psalms, David is talking about how wonderful God is. And the things that he thinks about with God, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, he's considering with his mind, trying to just ponder all that God is. At some point, David is just lost for words. In fact, David says about God when he thinks about him. The slide is stuck. Can you fix that for me? He says this about God in Psalm 139, verse 6. He says, such knowledge, knowing God, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. God is too wonderful for me. And he is so high, so holy, I could never even dream or think about touching that holiness. I can never attain to that level of holiness. God, you are too wonderful. There it is. And David, you're absolutely right. You're right. God is too wonderful. He's too high to be approached. God is wonderful. Therefore, therefore, God is so wonderful, it will take nothing less than a wonderful way for us to be with him where he is. So what is the wonderful way that we can approach God? During the Christmas holiday, I received a great invitation from Sister Honey and uh, Brother Jagged to meet with a group of young people young adults, people in business, people in school. It's like an international, not international, but most of them were from uh, Indonesia, but they speak English. And so they like to learn about other cultures of the world and where other people are from, what other people do in their own country. And so I was invited graciously to come and speak to these students, most of which are not Christian, but I was asked to come to talk about Christmas. What is Christmas? Why do we celebrate Christmas? And a little bit about American culture with Christmas. And so I went there in my mind intending on talking to them about, yes, in America we go shopping and there's Christmas lights and there's hymn singing and Christmas services and presents and all those things. But the more I talked, I knew they need to know something else about Christmas. There's something else about Christmas. Because the lights and the tree and the singing and the church services, that's not Christmas. So I said to them, you won't know Christmas until you know this. Unless you understand this, you won't know what Christmas is all about. And I said to them, listen, I'm sure all of you worship some sort of God. All of you probably do. And if you worship God, you probably believe that God is holy. If he's not, if he has sin, 
It's not quite a God, is it? But no, you believe God is holy. And they said, yeah, of course we do. And I said, and I know in your hearts you have a desire one day. It's true of all. That God that you believe in, that God who is holy, I'm sure one day you want to be with that God. And here's the thing. All of our religions teach us in order for that to happen, you've got to do this, do that, pray this, pray this that many times, go here, go there. And if you do all these things and you do it right, then maybe you'll get to be with God. I told them the message of Christmas is that God came into this world. God came to us. And God is not asking us to do this, do that, go here, go there, perform this, perform that, pray this, pray that. God says, believe in my son. And if you will put your trust in him, he is the way. He is the way into heaven. So Christmas is about God providing the way to be with him forever. And if you don't understand that, you will never know what Christmas is. What is the wonderful way by which we may approach a holy God? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 and 23 speaks of another mountain. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem. So the Bible is saying that we haven't come to this literal mountain of Sinai. We have come instead to a greater mountain, a higher mountain, a higher mountain that's actually heaven itself. It's the city of God. It's where God dwells and all the angels of God surround him in worship. This is the mountain that we are now approaching. And look at what the Bible says about this mountain, this Mount Zion in heaven. When you read about this here, it's a lot like what John saw in Revelation chapter 4. Later on, you can compare it to Revelation 4. But picture this. According to these verses, it says, we have come to this Mount Zion, the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And there, number one, there are a myriad of angels. Sometimes when the Bible talks about the angels and the number of angels, it says things like 10,000 times 10,000 or thousands of thousands. That's another way of saying there's so many, you can't count them. So many angels, you couldn't possibly count every one of them one by one. And so here in Hebrews, it says there are an innumerable company of angels. Angels without count and there they are not like they were at Sinai at Sinai they were filled with the fire and the holiness and glory and judgment of God but now yes all of those things but now they are with joy joy Jesus says for every sinner who comes home there is joy among all the angels of God I remember my father preaching a sermon Anytime he preached a sermon about Jesus and asked for anybody in the church who wants to receive Jesus, every hand that was raised or every person that came forward and prayed and asked Christ to come in and forgive them of sin, my dad would always announce to all the church, today their name is written in the Lamb's book of life 
And there's a celebration going on right now. All the angels are filled with joy for another sinner has come home. And all the church would clap together with that. When we approach this throne of God among all the angels, imagine they're all there surrounding. They're all filled with joy because God has redeemed and saved people. And we move closer through the angels. And then the writer says that there is the general assembly. There is the church there in heaven. These are the ones whose names are written. Their names are registered in heaven. They have become citizens of the city of God. And there they are, all the general assembly, all those men and women of faith in the Old Testament, and all of them from the New Testament, and to the church today. We all will be one in heaven together. We go through the angels. We see all the saints of God. And then you can't help but notice in the center of it all is a great throne. John saw this throne in Revelation and he said every color you can imagine was illuminating from this throne. There was lightning and thunder from this throne. And it was God who sat upon the throne. And there was a rainbow surrounding the presence of God. Such a beautiful sight. And here it says, God the judge is there. Same God that descended upon Sinai. The same holiness and glory. The same creator. The same judge of all of heaven and earth is sitting there on the throne in the midst of all the people. And they are not condemned. No, the judge declares them righteous and holy. They are justified in his sight. There is no fear in heaven as there was on Sinai because there are people who have been made holy before God. And then maybe as you look around at all the people surrounding the throne of God, one day we will be there and you will see relatives that have gone on before you and you will see friends and pastors that you had at some point in your life. I think a lot of times when I read this about my two grandmothers, my grandmother from my father's side and my wife's grandmother on her mother's side. These two lived to be in their 90s, a long, long life. My grandmother from my family, all of her life, she knew Jesus. I don't know if she could remember the exact moment she received Jesus. It was just who she was for as long as she could remember. And she raised her family to know Jesus. She was a faithful wife, a faithful mother, a faithful woman of God, serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, she's at home with him. And my wife's grandmother, as an opposite way of living, she lived as an unbeliever all of her life. All of her life, until the last couple of months of her life on earth, she received Jesus as her Savior. Now my one grandmother, who served the Lord Jesus all of her life, and my other grandmother, who served him only in the last fraction of time of her life, both of them had their names written in heaven. Both of them were registered in heaven. My grandmother, 
was no more a citizen of heaven than my wife's grandmother. No. The moment they put their trust in Jesus, they were registered. And today, perhaps they know each other. Perhaps they share all the good stories about their grandson in heaven. But you know what? Also, right now, my two grandmothers in heaven, right now, they are no more citizens of heaven than I am. I am just as much a child of God, a citizen of heaven. My name is in the Lamb's book of life just as much as theirs is right now. Now what they see is different from what I see. What they're experiencing right now is different than my experience. But make no mistake, I am just as much a citizen of that heaven that they're in right now as they are. And so are all of you. The moment you put your trust in Jesus, your name is written. Heaven is your home. Praise God. Praise God. How can all this be? How can God show such tremendous mercy? How can we have such a privilege as this? Imagine in heaven, you go through an innumerable number of angels. You move closer and you see all the church and all the saints of all the ages past and ages to come, and they're all there worshiping together. You see God the judge sitting on the throne. And then, and then, you see him. Him. You see Jesus, the mediator. John said, when I saw heaven, and I saw that throne of God, and everyone, all the angels, and all the church, and all the believers, and all the living creatures were singing and worshiping God the Creator. And there He was, the Father, of the Father sitting on the throne with a scroll in His hand. Who was worthy to take the scroll and open it was the challenge. But nobody, John says, in heaven or on earth was worthy to take the scroll out of the hand of God and open its seals. And John began to weep. And then an angel came and said, John, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And John says, then I looked and I saw the lamb, a lamb who had been slain, and yet there he is standing in the midst of the throne of God. Yes, he bled. Yes, he died. But here he is alive forevermore. And it's because of him, because of him that we have a home in heaven and John says, when I saw Jesus, all of heaven erupted in praise, and they sang a new song, and they sang about the blood of Jesus that has redeemed us all from our sin and gives us eternal life. Jesus, the mediator, he is the wonderful way. As a mediator, Jesus came, and because he is perfect and holy, and righteous. He is holy as God is holy. So with a holy hand, he took the Father's hand. And Jesus was also human, like us. And he knows what it's like to live a human life. And because he is human, he identifies with all of you. And with a human hand, he takes a hold of yours. And in a wonderful way, he brings the two of you together in peace, peace, 
So now those who believe in Christ, we have peace with God. Jesus, the mediator. And the Bible says that his blood, the blood in the Old Testament was often sprinkled upon the altar. It was sprinkled upon the people for the forgiveness of sin. But it says now that his blood, the blood of his sprinkling upon your life, it speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel. You remember Abel from the book of Genesis? The first man who had ever died, murdered by his brother. You remember those two, Cain and Abel? Well, in the story of Abel, many wonder, what does this mean? That the blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel. Well, people have two different opinions about this. And I'm not sure which one is true, but I think whatever one you believe, both cases are wonderful. Some people believe it talks about this. Abel, what was he doing in the book of Genesis? Abel knew, for me to approach God, there must be a sacrifice. So he would take a lamb and sacrifice the lamb and shed its blood upon the altar. And when God saw the blood of Abel, he was pleased with that sacrifice. And he had fellowship with Abel because of that sacrifice. So maybe it's this, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, has provided a better sacrifice than all the lambs that Abel ever offered. Because Jesus died once for all. You see, because Abel, Sunday, he had to provide a lamb. Monday, he had to provide another lamb. Tuesday, Wednesday, every day, every month, every year, his whole life. Lambs, over and over, the blood had to be shed. But Jesus died once for all. And his blood speaks of greater things than Abel's. His blood cleanses us from all sin once and for all. His blood has redeemed us, purchased us, and now we are the family of God through his blood. Number two, what happened to Abel? Cain was so angry at him, so jealous, he killed his brother, murdered him, spilled his brother's blood upon the ground. And when God came to Cain, Cain knew he was guilty. God said, your brother's blood cries out to me. The blood of Cain cried out to God. And it cried for vengeance. It cried for judgment upon Cain. Our sin in life, no matter how small you think it is, it cries out for judgment. It cries out for the wrath of God. It cries out for vengeance. Your sin will follow you all the days of your life if you don't take care of it. And it cries out, judge this sinner. No matter where you go, even if you think you hide from God, you can't do it. And your sin will follow you saying, here he is, here she is. You must judge the sinner. But when Jesus came, he shed his blood upon the cross of Calvary. And his blood cries louder than Abel's blood. The blood of Jesus cries out with a loud voice, grace, mercy, forgiveness for all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ is far better than any blood of Abel 
or any lamb or any sacrifice that's ever been made. Amen? Has that blood been sprinkled upon your life? Consider God's holiness upon Mount Sinai. Consider what it looked like, what it sounded like. Consider how all the people responded to it. And if you think about Sinai and the holiness of God, it puts us in a place of awe, awe and fear. And we say, this is our God. This is our God, holy and glorious to behold. But I believe the magnitude of the holiness of God is equal to the magnitude of the love of God. Just as great and mighty and wonderful His holiness is, so His love is equally great and mighty and wonderful. And so consider God's love on the cross of Jesus Christ. Consider that for just a moment. And if you do it correctly, you will be in a place of awe. Awe. And you will say, this is my God. This is what he has done for me. My God is holy and my God is love. Jesus said, speaking about himself, he says, when you lift up the Son of Man, in other words, when you crucify me, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know I am. It's the eternal name of God, the great I am. When I am crucified, he said, you will know I am God, holy and love. And just as great as his holiness is, that's how great his love is for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He is the wonderful way. And last, number three, we've seen the holy height. We know the wonderful way in Jesus, and now God wants a passionate people. People filled with passion for him. So now at the end of Hebrews chapter 12, we have a warning, but also with the warning, as often we see in Hebrews, with warning comes great encouragement as well. But here's the warning. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. Do not refuse him who speaks. Right now, all of you, all of you in this place, you have heard what God has said. And the warning to you right now, whether you're man or woman, whether you are a first-time visitor with us today or you've been with us for a long time, the warning is do not refuse what God is saying today. Don't refuse him who speaks. Do you remember how the book of Hebrews began? Chapter 1 begins with God. In the past, he spoke through prophets. But in these last days, God speaks to us by his Son. All that God has ever wanted to say to you is in Jesus Christ. 
And after we see Jesus, there's no more God has to say. It's all in Christ. So if you refuse Christ, you refuse God the Father. What a horrible thing it is for someone to know a holy God, holy God, and to say, I refuse. I won't listen. I won't obey. I won't surrender. I'll do my own thing. What a horrible decision that is to make. But I have to believe that even worse than that is to know that this holy God acted in the greatest love the world has ever seen. And in that love, this holy God came down to us and gave his life for you. If in the face of that, a person still refuses God, to me, that would be even a more horrible crime against God. To know not just his holiness, but the love that is offering salvation to us. Do not refuse him who speak, who's speaking. Because in the Old Testament, his people didn't refuse, or they, they didn't go through a time where they refused God and got away with it. No. They didn't. It didn't work that way. And so it says that, for if they did not escape, who refused him, who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. There is no escape for you if you turn your back on God and refuse to put your trust in him. And God says, there's a promise that once more he is going to shake not only earth, but heaven as well. You see, back in Sinai, the whole mountain was shaking. The earth was shaking, and it struck fear in their hearts. But God said, a day is coming where I will shake the earth again. And not only the earth, I will shake heaven itself. What does that mean? I believe it's looking to the future. The Bible teaches the next thing that's going to happen in God's calendar, the next thing, hear me, that's going to happen in the calendar of God is the rapture of the church. And after Jesus takes his church out of this world and into heaven, then follows what Jesus calls the great tribulation on earth. When those who have been holding on to this earth and trusting in the things of the earth, they will go through a time of tribulation and a time of testing. And the Bible teaches that in that time of tribulation, God is going to take everything away from the people. Those who trust in their money, God's going to take it away. Those today who love the earth, who want to save the earth and save the animals and save the trees and save the waters, God's going to take it all away. And everything that man puts their trust in in this earth, God's going to take it all away during tribulation. The whole ground is going to fall out because he wants to teach people, unless you trust in me, you will lose in the end. And even heaven itself will shake. John says, I looked and the stars of heaven fell. I looked and at the same time, the moon and the sun both were eclipsed. Now, if you know anything about eclipses, that's impossible. 
but not during the tribulation. And it will be the wrath of God upon the earth. God is going to show you cannot trust in the earth or in the heavens. You must trust in the Lamb of God. But not only are we looking forward to that day, or not only is this verse looking forward to that day, God shakes us even today. Whatever you trust in today, whatever you're holding on to and you're trusting in more than God, God can shake it. You know, when people want to collect cocoa beans in Africa, they go to the cocoa bean tree and they shake it with a machine. They shake it really hard and all the, the beans begin to fall and they harvest them. God knows how to shake these things in your life to teach you, listen, you cannot depend on these things. You must trust in me. I just met a woman a few days ago who's suffering through an illness. And she's trusting in the Lord. Yes, she's, she's hoping in God, but this really hit her like, a, like nothing she's ever experienced before. And when she was telling me about what she was going through, I, I thought of this verse and I said, you know, I don't mean to speak out of turn, but I believe maybe, just maybe, God's shaking you in some way. I don't know why. I don't know exactly what he's going to do, but maybe he's shaking you so that you will learn to trust in him. Sometimes God can shake good health. He can shake your home, your finances, your cars, your job. He can shake the things around you, not to ruin you or destroy you, but to teach you to trust in him. Because according to the Bible, God and this kingdom that we're receiving cannot be shaken, cannot be shaken. So when you build your life on Jesus Christ, you're on a foundation that will not be shaken. But are you building your life upon him? And last, it says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace. Let us have grace, thankfulness, gratitude, and may God give us the opportunity to serve him acceptably with reverence and with godly fear. Why? Because don't ever forget this. God is a consuming fire. God has not changed. There's no such thing as the Old Testament God. And now we've got the New Testament God. God is the same. When we get into chapter 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God has not changed. His holiness has not changed. His glory has not changed. What has changed is that he has created in you a new heart, a heart to receive him, a heart to obey, a heart to follow. The law of God is being written upon your heart. Don't ever forget that our God is a consuming fire. And I truly believe the closer we get to God, the closer we get to his blazing glory and holiness, God will begin to consume sin in your life. When God shakes, it's to teach you and to build you and to help you trust in him. But when God consumes with fire, it's to consume your sin. Musicians, would you come up? When I was a young person, I was at a youth convention. I was about 19. I listened to the message. I was Christian, and there was an altar call, and I just remember 
I don't care what the altar call is about. When the man calls for people to come and be prayed for, I know I'm just running. I just want to go to the altar and pray and worship the Lord. And so when the call came, I did. I ran and I went there and I just began to sing and worship. My hands lifted up. And there were so many kids around me. There must have been a thousand young people all around this altar area. I was singing, but I couldn't even hear myself because of all the other singing going on. But I felt like it was just me and God in this moment. And I just began to tell God how much I loved him. I want to be his servant. Whatever he wants me to do, here I am. Send me. Do in me whatever you want. And I just began to think about the fire of God. The all-consuming fire of God. And as I began to think about that fire, the Lord started to point out in my heart sins in my life. Whether it was sins in my relationships, sins in the things I was saying, or the way I was, maybe some of the habits I had were sinful, God began to point those things out. And as I began to think about that, in my mind, I just pictured an altar. An altar that was on fire. And in my mind, I was saying, Lord, forgive me of this sin. Forgive me. I put it on the altar. Consume it. I don't want this in my life anymore. And maybe three or four different things going on in my life, I just kept picturing this, putting it on the altar. God, forgive me. Consume this. Give me victory over it. I do not want this in my life anymore. And then as I felt God forgiving me, showing his great mercy for me, I said, now God, take your fire and put it in here. Put that fire in here. This all-consuming fire, put it in my heart so that if I sin, may I be quick to run to you for forgiveness, quick to repent, quick to be cleansed and to have victory over my sin. I believe God wants passionate people People who will be willing to be shaken in life in order to trust in him. People who will say, God, here is my sin. I do not want this anymore. I make my decision. Forgive me. Take it away. Consume it and consume my life. What can God do with such passionate people? God took 12 young men in the Bible. 12 young men who were passionate like that. And through them, he turned our word, world upside down. What can God do through you? There is a holy height. Praise God. Jesus has made a wonderful way. And God wants passionate people. Amen? Let's stand together.